Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Good morning, everyone. And as we see the room, the virtual room start to fill up, uh, just wanted to welcome everybody this morning on a, I'm going to say, as the weather people would say, a mix of sun and cloud where we are out here in Brampton. Welcome everybody to another free CC Partners live webinar. If you're not watching us live, then you are watching or listening to episode 20 of the Lawyers for Employers broadcasts brought to you by CC Partners. My name is Kelsey Orth. I will be your moderator today. I am a partner here at CC Partners. Our panelists are Mike McClellan and Arjun Deer, each colleagues and friends of mine, and of course, part of the team here at CC Partners. For those of you who are meeting us for the first time today, CC Partners is a boutique labor and employment law firm exclusively advising employers. As you can see in the tagline behind me, we are lawyers for employers. When we're not working remotely during this pandemic, our flagship office is located at 24 Queen Street in downtown Brampton, Ontario. We also have offices in Barrie and Sudbury. Online, you can find us at www.ccpartners.ca. This is actually the ninth webinar we've presented on employment law issues relating to COVID-19. Uh, as we all know, this pandemic continues and brings with it new challenges seemingly every week, if not every day. Uh, those challenges we face in our personal lives, our professional lives, and as business owners and employers. So without any further ado, let's get into our presentation. We've called today's presentation, the Workplace Reopening During COVID-19 Back to School Special. It's back to school for the kids and back to work for employers, new challenges arising all the time. We're gonna talk about some of those. We're gonna start with the extension of the amendment to the ESA, the Deemed Infectious Disease Emergency Leave. We're gonna talk about masking requirements and practices refusals to return to work, as I'm sure many of you have faced, absences, and then managing accommodation and medical information. And many of these topics are interrelated, as I'm sure you all know. Um, but as we go, we'll try to provide a clearer picture on the questions we've been asked, what we've been helping our clients and employers deal with, and what we can do moving forward. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Mike. There's our contact information. Mike is going to get us started talking about the extension of the deemed infectious disease emergency leave. Thanks, Kelsey, and good morning, everyone. Uh, Kelsey, thanks for that introduction. Uh, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the infectious disease emergency leave under the Employment Standards Act and exactly what that means. We're going to be talking about the uh, regulation uh, 22820. 
uh, that deems uh, what would sometimes be a, a layoff under the ESA, deems it as a, a job-protected but unpaid emergency leave. But before we do that, let's talk about what the Infectious Disease Emergency Leave actually is. This was a, a new leave of absence under the Employment Standards Act that was um, presented and implemented near the beginning of the pandemic, um, very similar to the other job-protected leaves under the Act, your pregnancy and parental leaves, for example. And what the Infectious Disease Emergency Leave does is it allows people to be absent from work for a number of COVID-related reasons. And that absence is uh, statutory protected. Uh, so it's an auto-culpable absence. It is job protected, but it is without pay. So essentially it means somebody has COVID reasons for being away from work, they're allowed to be away from work and, and they don't lose their job or get disciplined because of it. Uh, some of the reasons for which the employee would be entitled to an infectious disease emergency leave include if they have COVID or if they are caring for a family member with COVID. And one that's uh, kind of a hot topic right now, if they are caring for a child whose school or daycare is closed because of COVID. I'm saying because of COVID, because obviously that's the context we're seeing it most, but it really is about infectious diseases that may be designated by the province. And COVID is the one we're, we're dealing with mostly these days. In the future, this may apply to uh, new or other infectious diseases. So this, this feature of the Employment Standards Act is here to stay. Now, uh, in May, employers were understandably getting flustered about what to do with their employees whose hours had been reduced or eliminated. Um, that's because under the Employment Standards Act, uh, it, the, the, uh, an employee who uh, is off of work or loses their earnings of at least 50% in a regular work week is deemed to be on a week of layoff. And there's only so many weeks of layoff before it's deemed to be a termination and then the employer's termination obligations and liabilities kick in. So uh, the provincial government in Ontario and this was also the similar case in a number of other uh, Canadian jurisdictions, passed a regulation to the Employment Standards Act. And that is the regulation 220H20 that we're talking about today. And what that regulation did in effect was say that if an employee has had their hours of work eliminated or reduced as a result of COVID-19, it is not a layoff for purposes of the Employment Standards Act. It is deemed to be an infectious disease emergency leave. So it's kind of removing that liability from the employer when really it's out of the employer's hands, uh, whether they can have the employee in the workplace, either because they were mandated to be shut by provincial order, uh, or if because of COVID reasons, uh, it's, it's not possible or viable to have the employees in the workplace. So the effect of that regulation is that uh, an employee who's missing work for COVID re reasons uh, is not on a layoff. They are on the job protected but unpaid infectious disease emergency leave. The regulation was supposed to expire 
six weeks from the end of the province's emergency declaration, which would have been September 4th. Uh, but just before September 4th, the regulation was amended. So this regulation will be in effect until January 2nd, 2021. So let's take a look at the effects of the regulation. So as you can see on this slide, the regulation was implemented near the end of May, but it has a, a retroactive application going back to March 1st, 2020. And, and again, what this does is converts employees who may have been on layoff already as of the time this regulation came into effect to the infectious disease emergency leave. It's important to note that this regulation only applies in non-union workplaces. So if you have a union workplace uh, in, in which we represent a number of uh, employers who are bound to collective bargaining agreements, this regulation won't apply and so we'll have to be strategic and, and interpret the collective agreements to determine A, whether you have a layoff situation at all, and B, if so, how we're going to manage it. And we've, we have a number of different strategies that we've implemented for different employers who are bound to collective agreements. Lastly, also note that there is an exemption with respect to providing uh, benefit contributions during the infectious disease emergency leave uh, based on application of this regulation. Um, it's, it's a good idea for all employers to understand what this regulation provides and make sure that you're applying it correctly. And of course, if you have any questions or issues, uh, reach out to the lawyers for employers at CC Partners. So now let's take a look at what's going to happen at the expiry of this regulation. As of January 3rd, 2021, we have some time, some time to prepare and, and get ready for the end of the regulation. But unless things change, as of January 3rd, 2021, employees will no longer be deemed to be on an infectious disease emergency leave if they are away from work, uh, or sorry, I should say if the employer has reduced or eliminated their hours of work due to COVID reasons. And what that means is the regular Employment Standards Act rules and provisions around uh, layoffs will resume. And I should also mention, you see here on the slide, constructive dismissal. For those of you who, who aren't familiar with the, the concept of constructive dismissal, constructive dismissal occurs when the employer makes a unilateral change to the employment relationship that is a that fundamentally affects or fundamentally changes employment to the employee's detriment. If that happens, the employee is allowed to effectively resign, but claim to have been wrongfully terminated and make a claim for wrongful dismissal. And that's our theory of constructive dismissal. And that would often happen in these layoff cases. Somebody is put on a layoff and either their contract does not provide the employer the rights to put the employee on layoff, or the layoff extends uh, beyond the, the time allowed in the contract or the Employment Standards Act. The employee may have a right to claim a constructive dismissal, and the regulation says that's uh, until January 3rd, 2021, the employee does not have that right, again, for purposes of the Employment Standards Act. 
So as of January 3rd, 2021, the regular rules and provisions of, about uh, layoffs and constructive dismissal will come back into effect, which essentially means the clock restarts. And, and when I say the clock restarts, what I'm referring to is that the Employment Standards Act that says that a temporary layoff is a layoff that uh, does not exceed 13 weeks in a 20-week period, or if certain conditions are met, does not exceed 35 weeks in a 52-week period. The Employment Standards Act says that any layoff that is not a temporary layoff is a termination. But it also provides certain provisions and, and rules for what's called an excluded week, uh, a week where the employee is not working but does not count toward the 13 or 35 week tally for a temporary layoff. So it's very important to understand when the employee is on a layoff uh, and how we're calculating those weeks of layoff. And we need to know uh, for purposes of this regulation and the expiry of this regulation, exactly when those dates occurred so that we know what our liability or potential liability is with respect to layoffs. So that's the infectious disease emergency leave and the regulation with respect to layoffs in the leave. So now let's switch gears a little bit and talk about another issue that's becoming more and more common in our workplaces, which is masks, masks and face coverings. Sorry, Mike, just to jump in for a moment. Yeah. Um, I did notice that on our second slide, um, I think it was slide number five, uh, we had effects of regulation 288.20. And in fact, as you had mentioned in, uh, in the beginning discussion around the infectious disease emergency leave, it is 228. Slash That's 20. a common typo we've been um, seeing. And yes, because Regulation 288 under the ESA, as we know, has been around for a while and is often used, um, but has different uh, different effects altogether and is not related to uh, our, our COVID stuff, at least directly here. So my apologies, um, but just wanted to make sure that uh, nobody was confused on that front. Um, moving on, we heard... If you saw some of the debate last night, uh, there was mention and talk of masks uh, between the two parties uh, at the podiums. I will leave it at that because I couldn't watch too much of that. But uh, Mike, why don't you tell us more about uh, what our masking requirements and, and the best practices are around here and some of the issues that we've been dealing this with. This is a, a new issue and we have kind of new uh, laws and rules we have to uh, abide by as best we can. And we somehow have to marry them with old rules and old laws that we've always had to comply with as employers. Um, so, so when I refer to the new rules, I'm talking about the bylaws. And across Ontario, frankly, across Canada, there are many municipal bylaws uh, requiring that individuals wear a mask or a face covering in indoor public spaces. The bylaws, if you look at them, they tend to be really consistent throughout Ontario. I've looked at a number of them recently and they seem to be quite consistent. And they tend to specifically include 
an employee as an individual to whom the bylaw implies. Okay. Um, and that means there's an obligation on an employer as the proprietor of this indoor public space to ensure compliance with the bylaw rules. Uh, so what kind of workplaces would require a mask? Typically, we would expect it to uh, be a requirement where social distancing is not possible. Uh, if the employee can't work from home, and particularly if there are common areas where the employees need to uh, work together. Uh, you think of things like, you know, manufacturing, if you have people working in close proximity on the line, uh, you know, masks may be uh, likely a, a requirement under the bylaws. Uh, you have to look at your, your individual physical workplace uh, to determine that. Uh, and the problem, or one of the challenges we're seeing uh, is that employers may be put into a position where there's kind of a conflict between enforcing the bylaw on the one hand and abiding by the obligations under the Occupational Health and Safety Act and the Human Rights Code. You're supposed to comply with all three. And if everyone's wearing a mask in your workplace, then that's great, you're compliant. Uh, under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, of course, we have an obligation to take all steps reasonable to prevent health and safety hazards in the workplace, which could very well be the case if we have somebody who doesn't wear a mask when they're in close proximity with coworkers or members of the public. Um, and then we also have our human rights obligations and in, in specifically our obligation not to discriminate against uh, employees or, or people trying to procure our services who have a disability and may not be able to wear a mask. So you can see we have at least three different directions where, where we may be in a, in a conflict uh, position, particularly if somebody cannot or will not wear a mask. The municipal bylaws provide exemptions for people who do not have to wear a mask in a public indoor space. And the common one that we are seeing is where a person uh, expresses that they have a disability and can't wear a mask. Uh, personally, what I'm finding a little bit frustrating when I'm trying to advise employer clients is that the bylaws also say that a person who is exempt only needs to express that they have an exemption. They don't need to identify what the exemption is and they don't have to provide evidence of the exemption, which puts the, uh, you know, the proprietor of the space or an employer in a bit of a precarious situation where they have to abide by this bylaw, but they still have to uphold all their duties under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, and as we'll see also the, the Human Rights Code. Some exemptions are going to be really obvious and really easy to understand and, and what the bylaws give as kind of an example of somebody who may be exempt is somebody who physically cannot put on a mask or face covering or physically cannot remove uh, a mask or face covering. Um, that person will have a, a pretty clear exemption, but others may be less clear, uh, but, but legitimate. So for example, um, 
what what we know already is that some people may have a skin condition or an allergy uh, that wearing a face covering will actually cause them pain or or have an effect on their health and safety uh, which is legitimate so what we're left with is trying to balance complying with the bylaw on one hand either making sure people are wearing masks or allowing the exemptions by keeping a, a hazard-free workplace on the other hand under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So what we have to do is find a way to kind of accommodate uh, a person in our workplace, either a customer, client, uh, or employee uh, who asserts that they have an exemption. And that accommodation, uh, when it comes to uh, a potential disability situation, has to be done within the uh, rules and, and policies uh, under the Human Rights Code. But the one thing that I would want to make very clear is that it is simply not true that an employee or a patron can simply assert an exemption and then do whatever they want in your workplace. That's not how this works. There's going to be some compromise. There's going to be some flexibility. There's going to be some work to determine what we can do to accommodate a person with an exemption, but they don't get free reign to enter and stay in uh, your, your, your space. So when we have a person who is asserting an exemption or, and saying that they cannot wear a mask, we have to take a proper analysis to see if we can keep, uh, if, if we can, uh, uh, abide by our obligations under the Health and Safety Act, keep a health and safe workplace while still having the person remain in the workplace. Treat it like you would treat any other request for a workplace accommodation. It may be necessary to ask for medical information, but we have to be careful what we're asking for. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of guidance. Uh, these, aren't, these aren't disputes that have come before any tribunal uh, to be to be decided yet, uh, and I say yet. I, I expect that at some point we will have these issues. Uh, if if it's very clear that there's a, a physical limitation, uh, then there's likely no need to ask for for medical information. Um, but uh, in other cases, there may there may be. Um, the type of information we need. Uh, and, and not just to substantiate the, uh, the, the purported exemption, because we're not supposed to require evidence of the exemption, but we may need better information to facilitate some kind of accommodation. The type of information we need is going to depend on the individual circumstances. Is this a, a workplace where the employee wore a mask before the pandemic or would have had to wear a mask or face covering before the pandemic? If the employees are asserting they can't wear a mask, maybe we can ask if there's any other kind of face covering they can wear. Um, or we may need to know from a medical practitioner, is there anything that the employee or the employer can do to alleviate the inability to wear a mask? If it is a, an allergy situation, can they take a, you know, an antihistamine or something uh, and be able to wear a mask? Uh, can they wear a mask for part of the day, but not the whole day? Or is there any other accommodation appropriate to keep the worker in the workplace? Are they particularly vulnerable so that they can't be in the workplace at all? 
or can we find a way to physically isolate them from the rest of the um, workers in the workplace or, or patrons or customers? So we have to kind of be a little bit uh, analytical and a little bit creative to, to do the best we can uh, to abide by all these legal obligations that are on us as employers. And it may, for example, include some modifications to the work or the workplace. Uh, maybe the employee can come in and, and be in their individual workspace but not use the common areas. Maybe they can work from home. Maybe they can work off hours. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you have a shift where there's fewer people and, you know, the person had been on day shifts and we have to move them to night shifts. And, you know, maybe we can uh, implement and enforce social distancing and other hygiene protocols. You have an obligation to keep the workplace safe and we have to figure out how to do it within the limits imposed on us by the bylaws and the Human Rights Code. And that wraps up uh, the masks portion. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a new, tricky, sometimes confusing and sometimes frustrating circumstance for employers. Um, but, you know, the one thing that I can say for sure is, is we have a duty to uh, be, be, like I said, be analytical, look at our different options and, and try to come up with an appropriate solution in every separate case. Thanks, Mike. That, uh, you're right. I mean, it is new, it's novel. It's something that uh, everybody's getting used to. And, you know, quite frankly, from a personal perspective, I do appreciate when I see everybody else following the rules as, as we should be. Um, <clears throat> now, there are various employees out there who, for one reason or another, uh, just simply are refusing to come back to work when they're called. Uh, Arjun, what can you tell us about the best ways to deal with that? And, and maybe, you know, we can talk about some of the scenarios that have been occurring with some of our clients and, and employers out there who have summoned people back to work where it's safe to do so. And you still have employees saying, I'm not coming back. Right, so first off, I want to say uh, thanks, Mike. That was really informative and a, and a tough act to follow. Um, in terms of work refusals, um, it's important to remember that there's justified reasons and there's unjustified reasons as well. And we're going to go through all those today. So, you know, just starting off, you know, you're finally ready to reopen your workplace, but you have one or more employees who, who you know, just aren't able to return, either for right reasons or not. Uh, so before you move to discipline or, you know, worse yet, terminate, we recommend taking a step back to consider if your employee's work refusal falls under one of the three categories on this slide. So for one, uh, it's important to consider is, is this employee's work refusal related to a safety concern in your workplace? Mike discussed some of the obligations employers have, but in this regard, it's, it's really important to understand that under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, employees um, have the right to refuse work if they believe there is a risk uh, to their health in the workplace, uh, either to their health or, or to um, just to overall safety. So in the workplace, you know, before COVID, this typically involved concerns over the usage of machines, or other work processes. But you know, during this unprecedented time, an argument might be made that risk to COVID-19, exposure to COVID-19, is a reasonable health and safety concern. So in the event uh, of a health and safety related work refusal, employers are uh, really required to investigate this concern, take a really holistic view to it, and you know, follow the work refusal guidelines of the applicable provincial health and safety legislation before making you know, any decisions in that regard. 
So another consideration that we've seen is if the employee is actually entitled to a job protected leave of absence. Uh, this is something we'll discuss in far more depth on the next slide. So we'll wait for that. And finally, you'll see a select group of employees who may have a legitimate human rights protected reason for being um, unable to return. Uh, things that are uh, considered uh, covered under the human rights code, such as uh, disability or family status. So, and, and really, you know, no matter what their justification is, uh, your employee's request to be absent uh, really requires a practical approach. We recommend keeping an open line of communication with this employee and really taking uh, an effort to understand why they're saying they can't return and trying to find ways that you might be able to return them or, or find a different option for them that works for both parties. Because when it comes to accommodation, what it really requires is um, considering a request before making a final decision. So let's let's get into those job protected leave of absences. So on this slide, you'll see uh, these are the job protected leave of absences you should be aware of on this slide. So I would say first off, it goes without saying that you know if someone is suffering or potentially suffering from COVID nineteen, they must be medically cleared before they return to your workplace. This is important not only for you know that affected employee safety, but for the rest of your staff as well, and your patrons as well. Um, and second, uh, a staff may refuse to return if they have child or family care obligations. They might need to self-isolate as per uh, public health orders, or they might be caring for a family member who's tested positive for COVID-19. So child care and, and family care obligations is, is likely one of the most common justica justifications we've seen come across during COVID-19. And it's important to remember a leave for this reason is currently job protected in many provinces across Canada, including British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland. So in most provinces, you'll see a, a job protected leave in this regard, and it's really important to, to be cognizant of those. And when we're speaking specifically about daycares and schools, you know, as we all know, they've, they've now been allowed to open, but some have actually elected to stay closed. And many parents just have fears uh, around sending their children to day, daycares or, or back to schools um, too soon. And, and, and I think those fears might be justified given the, the rising cases over the past couple of weeks. So in this regard, I, I would say employers need to balance the need to be compassionate uh, with their actual business needs. It's important to remember that child and family care obligations are protected under the human rights code under a family status protection. So uh, it's really about having a discussion and, and maybe speaking to us before you make a final decision about what to do with them. Um, and you should also consider some possible accommodation options here, right? Uh, you know, just because they have to stay home to take care of, of, a, of a child doesn't mean they can't work at all, right? So maybe you offer them a flexible work schedule, you know, giving them the evening shift instead of the morning shift. Uh, variable hours or, or really some some more uh, uh, robust work from home options. So when we're discussing travel, uh, I would say the main thing here to consider is that employees may still experience difficulties and delays when they're returning to the country, uh, you know, if they've been allowed to actually travel for like, you know, a legitimate reason. And it's important to remember that anyone leaving the country must self-isolate for 14 days upon arrival and, and within Canada, I believe it's three days as well. And one justification that we actually don't have uh, on the slide is an employee who might be considered uh, under a vulnerable population, right? So this is someone who's at a higher risk of a severe illness due to COVID-19, uh, due to an underlying medical condition, a weakened immune system, or, you know, just due to their age. Uh, the reason, uh, uh, this reason falls under a job protected leave, uh, and, uh, based on what I discussed before, it's a, it's a job protected COVID-19 leave uh, under, you know, provincial uh, legislation. 
So for these individuals, it's very similar to the individuals who had to stay home due to childcare options, right? You, you should really consider remote work options for them. Uh, it's for their own safety. You know, it, there's no point of having a worker if they're not going to be around for much longer, right? So, uh, so for them, uh, I would just have a discussion with them and find out what they're comfortable with. And if it means a leave of absence, uh, that might be the best option altogether. So now let's talk about, you know, those reasons why you don't have to provide a, a leave of absence. So these are non-job protected leave of absence, and, and these are what we consider to be, you know, most likely illegitimate, right? So for starters, uh, we've had uh, a lot of people say, you know, we take public transit to work and, uh, and we're fearful of contracting COVID-19. While I, I do uh, sympathize with them, there's currently no public health advice recommending that individuals actually avoid using public transportation. So, you know, staff members who have these challenges should make necessary arrangements for uh, getting to work and, and back, right? Uh, and, you know, this is something we discussed earlier, but another common justification we have had is that, you know, there's, there's a fear of health and safety, right? And, you know, while the current pandemic has caused justifiable fear and anxiety, uh, fear alone of potential exposure is not considered an adequate reason to refuse working. So whether the work refusal will be justified in this regard um, really comes down to what measures you've taken as an employer to protect health and safety and eliminate any potential dangers in the workplace. So unless there's a justified reason why, um, you know, they can't come back, you know, other than an unsubstantiated fear of contracting the virus, you need to make it clear that your expectation is that to return to work. If they still refuse, I would say, you know, reach out to us, but you would basically be making it clear that their absence is deemed job abandonment and, and it may actually be considered resignation. But of course, before you take that, you know, really drastic step, reach out to us and, and we can figure out how to, how to communicate with the staff member. And, you know, another uh, reason why people might not want to come back is, you know, being in a multi-generational household, having, having, you know, the grandparents living with them or older parents, uh, or having an immune compromised family member who is at a higher risk of having medical complications. So staff members who are fearful of contracting uh, the virus, um, they might be fear of coming into your workplace, right? Uh, and, and it makes sense. But it's important to note that there's a difference between living with an individual who's considered vulnerable and taking care of them. Whereas living with one is not job protected, taking care of them is considered a job protected leave. So despite saying that, uh, I do think that you should take a practical approach as an employee and, and really uh, find a creative option for them, right? To, min to minimize exposure because, you know, they might not be considered a job protected leave, but to me, it does seem pretty legitimate. If you have, you know, an 80 or 90 year old living at home and, and you're scared of, you know, contracting to them because, it really could be fatal. So try to figure out if there's a remote work option for them or something that would, you know, kind of bring peace of mind to both sides. Uh, and the last one, the one that I hate seeing the most are, you know, as employers are bringing back staff, staff members say, you know, a staff member who might be a minimum wage staff member or someone, you know, earning, you know, around what the CERB is giving, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, uh, they say, you know, I'd rather just stay home and continue earning the CERB. And when the CERB goes away in a couple of weeks, it'll be EI. Uh, so in this regard, I would say you pretty much have three options to an employee who reaches out to you like that. Employers may allow the staff member to remain on leave of absence and, uh, and reassess the, the situation as COVID kind of evolves. Um, you may allow, allow them to stay on this leave of absence, but you know, tell them that their job will not be protected and, and it may actually not be available in a couple of weeks or, or months. Um, and the last one, the most risky option is telling them that you know, if they don't want to return to work, that they're pretty much abandoning their job. And, uh, and you know, because it, it's not a justified reason to stay home. 
and, and you do have a job available to them a day today and and you require them to return so it's uh again i would say just as an overall approach to any of these when you're faced with someone uh saying they can't return and, and you're not really sure about how to approach them, reach out to us and, and we can definitely have an, a nice discussion and, and find out what the best option for you in this regard is. Thanks, Arjun. I, I would agree with that in terms of, you know, don't make a hasty decision, right? And that was something that we, we talked about, you know, when you're uh, confronted with somebody refusing to return to work or, you know, throwing up roadblocks to their return, take a step back, examine whether there are any legitimate grounds and if it doesn't seem like there are then you know let's take a, a considered approach to it and you want to make sure too uh, that you're not treating one employee differently from another in terms of a process there may be different outcomes because there are different factors involved but uh, simply allowing one employee to stay home because they'd rather get the CERB or EI and not another one uh, based on your own choices is going to present you with problems down the line, uh, if not from a legal perspective, at the very least from a morale and team perspective. Um, certainly, you know, if there are people who are coming in and, you know, say it's a quote unquote frontline type workplace and you have people returning despite, you know, an enhanced risk or, or what have you, and obviously, you know, we're assuming that all the proper measures are in place and protocols from a safety perspective, but you've got some people who are willing to do it and others who are trying to find every which way around it. Consider how that looks if you're an employer who either isn't enforcing, you know, your rights as an employer or who is kind of dealing with things in, a, in an ad hoc or a haphazard manner and, and what it means for your business going forward. So I think all good points and uh, thanks Arjun. And of course you can't get into any discussion about absences, especially with respect to information that we can get from employees without talking about accommodation and medical information. Mike, what, uh, what or how is the management of accommodation and medical information different surrounding COVID? Thanks, Kelsey. Uh, good question. Um, before I get into the next part of our presentation, I, I think I just want to kind of piggyback on what you were just saying. When, when it comes to managing the workplace and when it comes to making modifications or accommodations for our employees, it's an individual exercise each time but it's still important to the extent possible to be consistent, at least in the approach. Um, you certainly don't want it to look like you're requiring uh, stricter standards of one employee than another before you would consider uh, the same kind of requested accommodation. So I would keep that in mind. Um, accommodation in pandemic times, uh, in some circumstances, is a little bit different from what we would normally uh, be, be doing, um, particularly when it comes to requests for medical information and whether and even when it is appropriate to ask for that medical information. Uh, for example, the Employment Standards Act, uh, under the uh, declared emergency leave and an infectious disease emergency leave provisions uh, tells us that employers are, are 
not able to require an employee uh, to provide uh, a medical confirmation that they have a right to take the leave, either that they have COVID or that a family member has COVID. Um, they, can't, they can't obtain that information before allowing the employer to be absent. Sorry, before allowing the employee to be absent. Uh, but what the, the legislation does say is that proper information can be required at the appropriate time. If you have an employee who says they have COVID, don't tell them they have to go get a medical note right away. Um, that's just going to put a strain on the medical system and possibly expose the employee and other people to this infectious disease, which is really the whole purpose behind the government saying an employee does not need to provide a medical note up front to take these leaves. But what we are going to need to, to have proper information for uh, is when an employee uh, wants to either be absent from work for an extended period of time or have modifications or accommodations for an extended period of time in the appropriate circumstances. We are seeing more requests for accommodation due to COVID. Uh, that's not unexpected. Um, that That is the reality. These requests are coming in more now than they were pre-pandemic. And, and you know what, that's understandable too. Uh, like I said, we have to be consistent in our approach. Remember that accommodation is a process. It's a process that requires at least two parties to cooperate, the employer and the employee. There's a union, the union has to cooperate as well to try to facilitate uh, sharing information and facilitate potential workplace modifications and accommodations. Those are kind of the ground rules. Those are never going to change no matter what when we're talking about accommodation. It's a process, it's not an answer. It's not, it's not a one-step process either. It's an ongoing process that, that requires sharing information, considering that information in good faith. It'll take some trial and error sometimes. And accommodation lasts until we get to the point of undue hardship. Uh, that's a legal requirement, undue hardship. That's our legal limit. That means some hardship you're gonna have to live with. Is that when that hardship is undue because it's creating a, 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 health, a health or safety hazard in the workplace or it's gonna be just too expensive. That's when we stop accommodating, but not before then. So there are a number of things that may need to be accommodated, particularly in light of the pandemic. Uh, first off is disability. Um, COVID itself would constitute a disability, it's an illness. Uh, but there may be somebody who has an underlying medical condition that exposes them to risk of COVID, for example. Um, that may need to be accommodated. Uh, family status is another one. Family status is the status of being in a parent-child relationship. And in the context of COVID, it is uh, a, a worker needs to take, take care of or provide care for uh, a parent or child. Um, you know, there, there are a few different cases going a few different ways on whether and to uh, what extent in, in, um, in determining how an accommodation is either uh, entitled uh, or is to be done. Um, you know, I would say be analytical and critical in each in each case. Um, 
you know, is, is this a case? I mean, some cases are going to be very clear cut. If a school or daycare is closed, the employee is entitled to be off of work. I would say that's not really an accommodation issue. That's something they're entitled to under the Employment Standards Act. A different situation is going to be, uh, you know, we don't feel safe. We don't feel it's safe for the child to go to, to school. Well, is this really something that we can accommodate? Should we have to accommodate it? It's kind of a tough question that way. And you might have different answers in a different workplace with a different employee in a different position. Age is an interesting one, uh, largely because we get, uh, sometimes we have uh, recommendations from our public health um, um, agencies saying that people over a certain age ought to be staying home. Uh, arguably, there may be a need to uh, accommodate somebody on the basis of their age. Uh, and we would have to take a look at uh, what is possible in terms of, of an accommodation, uh, including whether it's a change to the workplace, a change to their work assignment or their work terms, uh, or uh, granting them a leave of absence. Uh, there are some general principles in so there are some general principles, like I said, that are going to apply in all accommodation cases uh, in terms of what you can ask, what you can expect. Um, you know, what I would always suggest is try to determine what you need in order to explore accommodation. We have to kind of balance uh, what the request for accommodation is and the basis for it on the one hand, what information we would need to accomplish that on the other and on you know a third hand what information we might be entitled to having regard to an employee's privacy interests okay so establish what you need and then ask for that information but don't go further if you don't need to there's nothing saying that we can't make a request for information we get the information and we're still not satisfied or we still don't need to do no or we don't have what we need uh, to analyze what, what an appropriate accommodation is. So we ask for more information. That happens, that's fine. Or, or circumstances change, the person's condition changes. Or we try an accommodation and it's not working out for one reason or another. We get more information. Uh, that's fine, that's part of the process. But you will never be entitled to know when it comes to a person asserting uh, a disability. You will never be entitled to know their diagnosis or a specific treatment plan. We're never entitled to know that. And frankly, you know, good. Unless you're a doctor uh, and, and, you know, we've done literally thousands of accommodation plans. Uh, it's not gonna help me at all to have a diagnosis for a person's medical condition. What I need to know is what they can and can't do in the workplace. Okay, so I'm, like, I'm not going to pull a medical textbook and, and try to look things up. That's not important. And, I, and that's not our job. We're supposed to get medical information only of uh, the, the, the information that's necessary to know how and whether to accommodate uh, a person uh, and accept that in good faith. There are some exceptions to that, but generally that's what we have to do. We're entitled to the information we need in order to explore accommodation and keep the workplace hazard-free. So we'll go on to the next slide and talk about medical, medical information a little bit more in detail. So the circumstances in which we would want medical information include, well, accommodation and sick leave. Sick leave may be a type of accommodation. Um, 
You know, I would say first, what we have to do is take a look at the Employment Standards Act, or if you're a federal regulated employer, the uh, Canada Labor Code, and see whether there's a statutory leave of absence that would apply to the employee anyway. If there is, then it's not really an accommodation issue. They're entitled to a leave under the statute, they get the leave, that's it. Now these statutory leaves, uh, you know, are tend to be job protected, but unpaid. So, you know, that's kind of the silver lining to an employer in those cases. They can be a little bit cumbersome and inconvenient, but that's what we have. Other leaves of absence may be agreed between the employee and the employer. For example, if somebody doesn't have a right to the infectious disease emergency leave, uh, but, they're, but they're struggling and, and, and they want to be absent from work for a period of time, we may need to assess if that's something if that's something we can accommodate, whether it's something we need to accommodate for purposes of, of the employee's human rights entitlements, but also how to accommodate it. Uh, so, you know, if, if somebody's saying, um, you know, my, my child's school is closed, well, if, all other, if we know that all other schools in the neighborhood are opened, uh, certainly we would be entitled to some kind of confirmation that that school is closed. You know, if, if someone is saying that uh, I don't have COVID, but I have an underlying condition and I would be uh, at risk for COVID if I come to work. Well, that's a really good reason not to come to work. And we may want to explore either a leave of absence or a work from home arrangement, but you would be entitled to some medical information in support of, of that, uh, that request. And I would go even further and say, you're obligated to get information uh, because you know, the, the burden on an employer and an employee is to come to a reasonable accommodation arrangement, not necessarily the perfect or ideal accommodation arrangement for the employee. Uh, so in my view, it's incumbent on an employer to ask these questions and get information uh, to understand what accommodation is even possible in the circumstances. Uh, but you know what, on the other hand, you may be in a workplace where, frankly, having employees take an unpaid leave of absence is gonna help right now. Uh, if, if that's the case, uh, I would suggest maybe we aren't so worried about getting medical information. And, and if that's something that we can a request, we can accommodate uh, at any rate, then, then yeah, let's go ahead and do it. I would also be careful though, to be formal and clear about what the accommodation is. Uh, it should be clearly communicated between the employer and the employee. Uh, I would suggest it should be in writing. Uh, and it should include things like what are the workplace accommodations or, or other accommodations that we're agreeing to, when it will begin and how long it will last. If it's something like a part-time work arrangement, when will the start time and end times be? If it's a work from home arrangement, how much work are they doing from home? And in all cases, what is the compensation going to be for the uh, employee. Uh, an employee is not entitled to be paid at 100% of their regular rates if they're not doing 100% of the work. That is something that really should be clarified from the outset and agreed upon formally and in writing before the accommodation is put in place. So as you can tell, there are a lot of things to consider in accommodations. We do have some basic ground rules that are going to apply in every case. Uh, but, you know, every case may have a different outcome when it comes to uh, accommodation. So uh, 
gathering information is always going to be key. And that's what really helps us on our end provide advice to employers on appropriate accommodations in the workplace. Thanks, Mike. And thank you, Arjun. Mike and Arjun, I just wanted to give you a chance to off offer some uh, final thoughts. Uh, if you have them, I know Mike kind of summed up things there with respect to the accommodation issues. But if I were to give you, I won't say two minutes uninterrupted, uh, as they were saying last night on those debates. Second time I mentioned it, obviously it's on my mind. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe 30 seconds to a minute to offer a, a pithy bit of advice to, to our listeners and, and viewers. Arjun, why don't we start with you by alphabetical order? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think with COVID, it's just important to remember that, you know, it's, it's a tough time for everyone. You know, we're all dealing with it, whether you're an employer or an employee. Uh, and, and it's just important to take, a, like I said earlier, take a practical approach, like have those discussions with employees, really understand what's going on with them, why they're making requests, whether it's for accommodation or if they can't return or, or whatever else, or if they can't wear a mask and, and, and really just try to find a solution that works for everyone. Right. I think there's no, it, and right now, and it, and it really applies to accommodation as a whole is that there's no perfect answer or, or approach, but there is a practical approach. Right. And, and I think that if, if you're fair, uh, I think that both parties will be happy in the ending. So, uh, so overall, just kind of, you know, summing that up is just, you know, just remember that COVID is affecting everybody. And, uh, and I don't think anyone's expecting perfection. They're just, they're just expecting some fairness and we're just trying to take uh, something that work for everyone. Well said, I, I would agree with that approach as well. Uh, you know, like we said before, you get something and maybe the initial reaction is by something, I mean, the response from an employee and maybe your initial reaction is it's BS or you don't believe it or what have you, but, you know, take a step back. And as you said, if you're fair in your approach and Mike said the same thing, you know, the approach is, is what has to be consistent, not necessarily the determinations or results of any particular instance but it's it's all about the process and because so much of this is new we're relying on the principles that we know to be sound and true at law with respect to our normal quote-unquote normal day-to-day -day use of you know the management tools available to us but uh, it is new ground so uh, Mike what, what can you add to that for us? Well I think Arjun really summed it up nicely and I would agree with that this is a, you know, kind of a strange new situation, even though we've been in it for six months. Uh, it's a strange new situation, at least in terms of coming back to work. And, and I would say particularly with our um, mask uh, requirements and, and trying to comply with a bylaw on top of what our regular uh, legal obligations were, is, is, it's already presenting some challenges for our clients um, and for all workplaces, um, you know, I would say try to keep in mind our, our first principles. We have to do our best to comply with everything, comply with all, all of our legal obligations. Um, keep an open mind, try to be a little bit creative and flexible. When it comes right down to it though, um, you know, we, we have to do what's right for the people for the, for the health and safety of the people we're working with. Um, if, if we had to err in any direction, I know that's where I would be uh, leaning. Um, so 
uh, there we have it. And, and oh, good luck, everyone. And we'll get through this together. Thanks, Mike. And, and thanks, Arjun. So uh, as I mentioned, we will transition to the Q&A portion. You will be able to access all of the Q&A discussion through our normal channels. Um, that would be our broadcast tab on our website at www. I don't know if that was four W's, but ccpartners.ca. You can also access our YouTube channel to view this broadcast and the Q&A portion at just search CC Partners YouTube channel. And uh, we'll also put it up as a podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, however you get your podcast, you can find us there. Um, on behalf of Mike, Arjun and myself, I want to thank you all for attending and for your participation and looking forward to dealing with some of the great questions that have come up shortly. Um, you know, if you're looking for more information, we also have a number of award-winning articles related to COVID and otherwise uh, on our blog. You can also find on our website and, um, you know, bear with us as we transition over to the Q&A portion. So thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll see you shortly in the Q&A. Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca.